0: I worked every day in my business from Taboo from 52 weeks a year for 10 years straight, Yes, and I realized that I'd made more money in my buying a home exactly. and doing the, the St. Kilda Road property, just two things, and I borrowed 100% of the funds and I enjoyed having them on the books than I did working all of those days, 3,900 days of working, and I made more money just doing property deals. Do you want your business to grow faster? Are you feeling stuck or
1: frustrated because you thought you would be further along by now? Wouldn't it be great to learn how the best entrepreneurs and business leaders accelerate growth through all types of deals? This is a weekly podcast featuring conversations with business owners, executives, and leaders as we reveal the behind the scenes details that give you, our listeners, the confidence to pursue your own deal-driven growth. Here's your seat at the table, your key to get behind the closed doors so you can get into action, learn best practices, and avoid mistakes. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for 35 years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. Welcome to the Deal Quest podcast. Let's get started. So my guest is Andrew McKinnon. The tale of taboo began when a 19-year-old ambitious Melbourneite heard the sound of London calling answering the call andrew relocated to colder climate and begun working as a street hustling salesman he later returned to australia to, to provide something different by encouraging brands to show their audience what they do rather than tell them he's got a long bio that's going to be on the on the show notes because there's so much that he's accomplished but let me just lay it out here quickly and you, i encourage you to really read the full thing because boy he's gone on to build a you know a top top agency his, his brothers come on and, you know, they, they have a business partnership there. So that's a deal. He's bought real estate in a couple of different situations. He has some other outside businesses that took some deals in negotiation. So we're going to get into all of that. I really want to welcome you, Andrew, to the show. I mean, he's a fellow EO or, uh, you know, uh, entrepreneurs organization member that I used to be involved in a lot. So we, you know, we got connected through some EO connections. Andrew, welcome to the Deal Quest podcast.
0: Corey, it is awesome to be here. I'm so excited. Right now, my office would normally be bustling with lots and lots of people, uh, but right now, due to this COVID-19 situation, it's really just me sitting in a room talking to you in California.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, I I feel uh, like you are far from alone. Right, there's so many of us in that position now, and it's an, you know, and it's an interesting time to talk about deals and opportunities. But I'm a big believer that you know, there are so many. Super successful companies that have been born out of challenging times or companies that have taken themselves, you know, to the next level. And while obviously we are, uh, need to be concerned about keeping healthy and, uh, supporting other people and contributing to people who are in need, you know, there's also, uh, you know, a choice on how
0: we deal with these, uh, with these downtimes, you know, uh, these challenging times. Uh, Corey, I, I couldn't agree more. And I mean, the last two weeks has been scary. Like from a business point of view, it's been terrifying. And just like dealing with the blows as they come one by one by one, but then it sort of gets to a point where I sort of start to pop my head up. I go, okay, what's the situation here? What's the landscape? And where's the opportunity here? And I reckon, I reckon there's two opportunities. And one is an immediate opportunity with, you know, the situation that we have around the world. And that is that everyone has new needs everyone has got we're looking for business and brands that take some leadership we're looking for some entertainment and some humor and we've got new sort of practical needs around how we're living our life so you could sort of bundle all that there like our new immediate opportunities and then the long-term opportunity is all these sort of you know dare I say it and sadly you know whether it's distressed assets and businesses that sort of need propping up property talent so that sort of comes up on the back end, and I have got I've got one experience I'll share with you about that maybe later. Okay, great, absolutely, and I
1: I, I totally agree with you. So before we go further down that road, I'm going I just want to take you back a little bit and uh, give people uh, a little insight into uh, you. So when you were a kid growing up, maybe eight, ten, twelve years old, right? What did you want to be? Because my guess is, uh, you know, basically being a solar, serial entrepreneur with really these successful businesses, doing all these deals, and owning
0: property. May have been it, but maybe not. So, what did you want to be when you were young? Do you, do you know? I'm going to tell you something interesting. I mean, I didn't know what I wanted to be. I wanted to be a tennis player, and uh, I was. I had two coaches, and I would go and play pennant and tournaments. I was a good tennis player back then. Um, so, it was like, I was a little sporty kid. But I, uh, in the classroom, I loved creative subjects. Um, I was. Not that good at uh, writing and reading, <laughs> so I was a slow <laughs> starter in that regard. Yep. you know, it really was. Um, school was like a, the academic component of school was kind of like a pill that I had to swallow. So it was, you know, I just had to keep swallowing and chewing. I
1: love it. And also, last question: looking back to earlier days, but or maybe not so early days. Was, what was your first real business, however you define that?
0: Um, oh, my first real business. Um, well, I, as per the bio. I took a trip over to London. Um, I'd done a year and a half of studying marketing at university, which I just got into on the skin of my teeth. Halfway through the degree, I go to London. I can't get a job in any of the banks. For some reason, I thought that I was meant to be in finance because the people I was hanging around with were all in finance. Um, I get a job selling these um, hair salon, day spa, and gymnasium coupons on the street. And I become, you know, some, you know, a hustler. Uh, and it was a slow start. I wasn't good at it at the beginning. Uh, and I realized if I could get someone to like me within the first, you know, two minutes of meeting them and stopping them on the street, I could actually get get a sale done. And so for the 12 months that I was in London there, I was meant to be traveling around. I didn't travel around at all. I, I stayed in London. I wasn't excited about coming home. But when I got back, I was like, hey, maybe I should start this business. So at the age of 20, Taboo was born and I went off with my mate who worked with me in London. Her name is Sass Landy. And she. I said, do you want to sign the paperwork here and you know for 50% of the business? She said, no, 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 you sign this one. I was like, mm, okay. Well, I, I'm going at it alone. So I had no <laughs> idea what I was doing. And on the 1st of December in the year 2000, I was um, on the streets of Chapel Street, which is one of our fashion strips um, with a bunch of people. All, they were all on commission and I was too afraid. But to stop anyone for the first six hours. I just stared at people walking past uh, and I eventually plucked up my courage and we started to make sales. And that's how Taboo started. And Taboo is actually 19 years later, that's still my baby.
1: Wow, and you know, it's, uh, I mean, just give people an idea of how much it's grown and, and you know, it's, it's, it's an award-winning agency. I mean, like, you know, you, you built a significant business here.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, the thank you. <laughs> thank you, Corey. The thing that we did differently back then, um, and again, it wasn't my model. I stole the model. But what it was about was getting people to go in and experience a particular product or service whereby that product or service was so good that it would try to promote word of mouth and repeat visitation by that person. So we started to do uh, evolve into street marketing. It was in an era when Traditional advertising was so expensive. You know, everyone was you know in print, they were on billboards, television, and there was no gap between that level and that expense and something more practical. And if you ask most no small businesses, media, right, no there social- was no social media. Yeah. There was digital, the internet yeah. that only just sort of had just come out. And if you ask small businesses, how do you win customers? They would all say the same thing: word of mouth. Yeah. So I used to say, okay, if I can get a thousand customers into your business. It's not going to cost you anything other than you've got to show them what you do for free. Do you reckon you can get them to come back? And they would say yes. So um, we sort of went into, into guerrilla marketing very quickly. That was where we were labelled, you know, one of Australia's first guerrilla marketing agencies. Um, we had a bunch of young, cool boys and girls across Melbourne and Sydney, and occasionally we'd be up in, in Queensland and we were approached by a whole lot of record labels, uh, movie film houses. Um, We were launching albums, DVDs, MP3 players. Virgin would approach us to launch their new credit card, and so the clients just stepped, you know, started to step up, and people started to like this attitude, which was just okay. We've got to come at this differently. We've got to try and get them to experience something, and we've got to try and get them to talk. And so, if we fast forward into today, our principles are very, very similar. What I guess I could could stop, um, just put a little hold on that and go back to the start of time. I've got a brother called James. I've actually got three brothers, um, but my my neck, I'm the oldest of uh, four boys. My brother next down, James, who's just a tiny bit younger than me, he, he didn't go on starting his own business. He went and worked for the big agencies, George Patterson Bates, Clemenger, who are all part of international you know, conglomerates. Uh, and then he moved to New York and worked with um, Strawberry Frog as the strategy director. We had this dream that maybe we could start a business together where he would sort of come from this global, big agency, top down approach. And I was sort of this glass levels, you know, started at the streets, you know, working my way up. And he came over and six years ago we joined forces. And that was really where a lot of magic took place because, um, you know, he didn't know anything about having a business and I didn't know anything about. What marketing at the top end of town was like and so we called this like the east meets west philosophy and that that blew up into um into a sort of you know we went on this mission of hiring the best possible people from the biggest agencies and mixing it all together into this new belief or with these new beliefs and the two core beliefs are what a brand does is more important than what a brand says. So more about getting businesses and brands to take action and do something that's interesting. And people are a brand's most powerful medium. And that is we've just got to get people to love, to adopt, to share, because that's more more important what other per, another person says about your brand or you as a person, than it is you talking about yourself.
1: So the great thing is that you, you and your brother came together and really accelerated the growth and now you have this big agency. Talk to me about, cause that's a deal, right? When you're in a, in a business partnership of any type, you know, we say it's like a marriage, uh, you know, maybe, you know, uh, without the only element that's probably not there is the sex, right? Because, uh, <laughs> right. Otherwise you're dealing with no finances, you're dealing with being together, you're dealing with, you know, like all this stuff, right? And, exactly. Exactly. You know, so, so, uh, and, and sometimes you spend more time with your business partner than you do with your significant other. Uh, I'm not saying that's a good thing, but in the reality yep. of the entrepreneurial world, sometimes that happens. So, um, yeah. So you have two elements: one, just the the business partnership in general, and then the fact that it's with a, your brother, which adds yeah. another dynamic. So talk to us a little bit about that deal, so to speak, and you know the challenges and opportunities of it.
0: Yeah, that was a really tricky one, Corey, because um, I, you know we both wanted it to take place, but after sort of how many years would it have been? Fourteen years of me doing taboo. It's very difficult just to go. Oh, I'm because you're my brother. I'm just going to give you you know, 25% of the business. Right. I just couldn't do that because that's just uh, crazy. But at the same time, I didn't want to try and, you know, overinflate the price. So, you know, what was interesting was that I was trying to do a deal with him and the creative director of Strawberry Frog in New York at the same time. So James said this guy called Ant was going to come out to Australia. He, together, those two guys who were working together in, in previous agencies were a real force. James had to resign first from his time. Okay, so hang on, let me go back to the deal. We engaged the third party, which was an independent person that we both respected. And we put a valuation on the business, um, which had been inflated due to the previous year of sales, because the previous year of sales was a record breaker for Taboo. Um, and it was based on one client spending a lot of money with us. So that pitched up the valuation of Taboo and that made everyone really excited or those guys really excited about coming on board and making money. Now with James, because he was my brother, I said, here's the valuation, by all means get another person to validate that price, which he did um, and which Ant did as well. And what I said to James behind the scenes, I said, James, okay, now you don't have to pay me yet. You can pay me out of future profits because I understand that this is you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars and the other guy, he's going to have to pay straight away. So um, for three years, we finessed this conversation now down into the day of signing. By this stage, James had flown over. He was working in the business, negotiating things like salaries and bonuses and the share price was all difficult. But on the day of Ant White signing, I can be honest and say that the business, probably due to my distractions, the business had had lost its profitability, So the valuation in his eyes was all all sort of a bit grey. He said, he called me up on the day of signing after three years of work and said, hey, I'm really sorry, but I've just been offered a huge job at another agency. And so there and there, this whole idea, this thing that we were working for for three years just blew up in our face. And so it was just James and I. And for James, I just said, okay, he said, look, that I might get that to change the price, the valuation, because this is now a risk. And so we, we actually recut the deal where I put a ceiling on the value of the business and no bottom on it. And I said, whatever we do in the next 12 months, times this multiple will become the value that we'll, I'll sell you your 25% at. And if the business makes zero profit, you're going to get in here for nothing. Wow. And so... Uh, we actually hit the top. We went above the top bracket together, um, which was capped. And then he was only delighted to say, okay, cool. Yeah, I owe you that money. So um, now that money still remains in credit. <laughs> um, and uh, we haven't we haven't discussed it often, but we know it's there.
1: <laughs> Great. One last question on this deal, and then I want to move on to some of the other cool deals you've done. You know, in terms of, I mean, obviously you have, you have a majority. Uh, you know, we don't have to get into the details, but, you know, I, I assume, you know, you both contribute to decision-making, but, you know, how, how does that work? Because that's often a challenge, right, with business
0: partners in terms of people having different views or that kind of stuff. You know, how, how do you guys deal with day to day? Yeah, absolutely. It's really interesting. I've never – I have always been the majority in this business and I've never – I don't rule with an iron fist like that. I, right. I, I mean, I, I pretty much – I don't want to go ahead and make a call against the support of my team uh, and my partnership. I've always been one to, I'd rather sit in the boardroom and thrash it out and I will quite happily, uh, and I've done this for years, I'll say, I'll pick my battles. I'll say, okay, this isn't my, I, I don't, you know, I, this is my, my stance, I'm going to put this forward, but I can see you're more passionate about this particular situation than I am mm. and I've also had more years in business so I'm just going to go, look, you know what, you have this one and let's just see how it goes. Because he's, we've both come from different parts of town, he's got more experience in some areas and I've got uh, more experience in other areas. And so my picking in the battle is just pretty much quick, a gut feeling, a bit of navigation at the 11th hour and go, no, okay, fine. I'm not going to attach myself to always being right. And that's one thing that's been, that's helped this partnership very much in the last five years is me letting go of thinking that I know everything and entrusting that my brother. And then some of our amazing employees that we've managed to bring on is letting them have a go at making a decision and then backing them in. And then if it doesn't work, I say, okay, look, that's fine, we, but we learn from it, right? And they go, yeah, we learn from that. Let's try it this way next time. Yeah, cool. You know, so we learn so much from trial and error. Failure is a huge part of how this business has grown. Love it. Love it. Let's take a
1: break from the show for a minute so I can invite you to join our DealQuest Dealmakers community and our upcoming Zoom event, Conversation, Connection and Cocktails. We're doing this every Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern time and you can sign up at coreycupfer.com slash CCC event. That's coreycupfer.com slash CCC event. You'll have a chance to engage with other business owners, leaders and executives to hear more from them about their greatest challenges and most effective strategies for growth in these challenging times. Now back to the show. All right, so let's switch gears a little bit because I know you've done uh, at least a couple of really interesting real estate transactions along your journey. So uh, let's, uh, you know, tell me the stories of, of uh, some of the interesting ones in, in that realm.
0: Yeah, cool. So, so I mean, I, I started to at 19 or 20. For the first 10 years, I'd failed on a whole lot of smaller businesses. Um, there was a lot of savings going on, I have to be honest, by the age of 27 when the GFC came about, I had no money in the bank. And I heard of a really impressive property tycoon who was pulling together a group of investors, a group of people to buy a medium-rise building on one of our biggest commercial strips here called St Kilda Road. This was the state's police headquarters. It's a 21-storey building and uh, we could see that the building had been valued previously at $66 million before going to the GFC. In the GFC, because the building was owned by one of the major banks and the banks needed to be liquid because a lot of people were pulling their cash out of the smaller banks and putting them into the bigger banks because everyone was terrified the banks were going to go under. Yep, and, so, and, and um,
1: folks, just so if anybody on this doesn't know the acronym, because
0: in some countries it may not be as uh, popular, you're referring to the global financial crisis, right? The global financial crisis. Yeah. Okay. one of the toughest times I've ever been in business. Yes. So, meanwhile, Taboo has its revenue has gone to zero for three months. We not one client spent one dollar with us for three months. Wow! But on the other hand, this property deal just looks so good. And the reason why the property deal looked so good was because all of a sudden the value had gone from sixty-six million down to forty-four million, and the tenants were government tenants. It was the police headquarters, and they were paying five million dollars in rent. So if you do the maths on that, it's returning something like fourteen percent, and they were stable clients. They're not going to go bankrupt. They're always going to pay, and this building was is in a great spot on the main drag going into the city, and so. In support of uh, Ian Robertson, who is uh, the property tycoon, we all had to go off and find ourselves, you know, seven figures each. I'd never done this before and I had no security, so I went to the bank and I said, hey, um, can I borrow a million dollars? And they were like, yeah, sure, you know, and I was like, great, this is amazing, you know, and I started filling out all the forms and finally uh, they said, okay, what security have you got? And I was like, (laughs) "Uh, what do you mean? Security? I was like, ah, oh, you need something just in case this doesn't work out. Right, I got it. And so I, um, I called mum <laughs> and I said, mum, I need, I need to mortgage your house. And mum, being mum, who's just awesome, she's like, uh, right, okay, darling. Uh, all right, sounds good. Before we knew it, mum and I, were, she was backing me in to, to buy a piece of this um, medium-rise building and they didn't settle on the day. I missed settlement. I prolonged the settlement by a few days. Uh, Finally, the money came through and we got it across the board. Each month, I was able to give mum a bunch of cash from the rental money coming in, which is at, uh, up at that 14% return. Uh And in, within four years, we sold it um, for what it was previously valued at, which is about $68 million. Uh, wow. So I was able to give mum and say thank you for, you know, for it's, the work.
1: It's really interesting because... uh you know, that decision, I it, it reminds me, I, I've had the pleasure of spending some time with Damon John, and he told me the story personally, but he also has told it on Shark Tank, where, uh, and in fact, I think, uh, I don't know, a few months ago, I was watching an episode of Shark Tank here in the U.S., and and uh, and somebody had uh, talked about, you know, getting money from their parents, and one of the other sharks had criticized them, and uh, and Damon said, hey, I mortgaged my mother's house to start Fugu, right? Yes. Yeah. You know, it's always interesting, the people who are willing uh to do that and you know and, and risk challenges with and also listen frankly you had a great mother right who was willing to, who's willing to back you in that way and it it, uh, it sort of takes a level of risk taking and confidence that uh you know many of us entrepreneurs have but many people don't.
0: Oh that could have gone so so badly. <laughs> I mean <laughs> I could have had her home taken away from her but you know that's what we do. We take risks and a like minded entrepreneur in, in in terms of my mother, she she took a risk as well. She backed us in and backed in the project and I put all the facts on the table and, and she was able to share on the upside, which I was so proud, you know, at the end to go, here's, here's a check. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> Thanks. Great. Thanks yep. for backing in your son. And that was the first break, you know, uh, that really helped.
1: And do I remember right from uh, some of our, uh, you know, pre-call conversations that you also uh,
0: bought the building that you guys are now in? Yeah. this is um, This building here, I can see, I just love property. I absolutely love it. And if I was to fast forward my life, I reckon I'm going to be in property. I like creating spaces and I like owning things um, and bricks are good to own. So this property here, I was looking at renting a property for Taboo, for the new headquarters of Taboo because we're sick of the old one. We've been there for 10 years. I phoned sort of a similar situation. I was on the phone. I was about to sign a lease for five years and the lease terms are terrible they said oh in five years time we're going to kick you out and all your fit out's going to be sort of you know it's yours it's a scrap heap of the building's going to be demolished and we're going to put up something on top of the building and I was like that's just not good investing how is that good investing so I sort of said to my dad hey I got half a million bucks in cash do you want to put half a million bucks in and we can go and buy a five million dollar building now at that stage I didn't know what the loan-to-value ratio was or how much cash I needed to put in to get something. I was probably likening it to a home loan. Right. Dad's like, okay, cool. All right, let's do this. Let's do a deal together. So we found a property which was way more, way more. Do you want numbers? Sure. Do you want any numbers? If you want to share them, sure. Sure, 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 sure. So all of a sudden, we go to bid at an auction because this area is hot property, Okay. It's hot property because it's the intersection of where all the high-rises, it's, it's an industrial area. So huge footprint blocks on the side of the city and if you draw a straight line across the other side, it's all turning into high-rise. So it's like everything's pointing to this pocket yes. becoming the next high-rise zone and within this area, we've got Tesla, we've got Facebook, we've got Uber, We've got all these cool agencies. We've got all these tech startups. Everyone's moving into these converted warehouses, and this has become a really cool and edgy place to work. Sure. But it means that it's a hotspot, so, and the desire to be here is very high. So anyway, with our very undercooked deposit, the bank, sorry, this property came up. We went to bid. We missed an auction. We got tapped on the shoulder, said, how about coming and buying? now?" are looking at this one. And this was an old mechanic shed. It was terrible when I say terrible, run down, dilapidated, pictures of naked women up on the walls. There was crap everywhere. And the guy, he illegally lived up here. And he said, hey, I want $7.5 million for this. I was like, shit, this is going to cost a fortune to fix. Yeah. So um, he stuck by his figure. He didn't budge. I said, Dad, we can't afford to do this together. We've got a million bucks. And we actually bought in a comedian, a famous Australian comedian by the name of Andy Lee who he's sort of, he's a cool dude. He's a wheeler and a dealer. And he walked through 15 minutes and he looked at me and goes, I'll do this deal with you. I'll buy him. So uh, I said, great. I'm sort of rubbing my hands together. I said, I think if you put in half a million, we'll we'll get there. Anyway, how wrong I was. (laughs) We needed. We bought it for seven and a half plus the tax was eight. Then I realized we've got to convert this from an industrial warehouse into a commercial building. So that was going to cost $3 million. Yes. So I've now mortgaged my home, ripped all <laughs> the equity out of that. Everyone's thrown in. So we've all chipped in and led you know, to the eyeballs and put in $6 million in cash, not $1.5, but $6 million in cash. And then we opened up the doors. And within about a month, we had 150 employees, not all of mine, but tenants downstairs and other businesses. And we've created this hotspot. Hot and uh, we've gone down the road of wanting to look at what development would look like with this project. And so we're in the process now. We've just agreed on a figure, but we've sold 50% of the building to the best developers within this area, who is another EOA. And him and his father have bought 50%. And we've done an open table transaction. It's been very much, we're not getting an externally valued. We're going to tell you the price and we're going to tell you why the price. And part of the reason why is because we're putting in a, bit, a little bit of a kicker for us. And so we're about to, well, we've signed the heads of agreement. and We've agreed on the price. And we're going into business with this EOA, father and son, called CoBuild. And in three years' time, when these leases are up, we will be going, putting in a, a, a permit to go to 10 storeys. And it will be hopefully building by three years.
1: Um, That's great. So it's already... uh I assume, uh, and you don't have to disclose any, any numbers on this side, but let's just say I assume that the um, mortgaging of the home and, and, and going all in on
0: that is going to pay off. Yes. Yes. Yeah. It's going to pay off. <laughs> the problem is, it's just, it's a longer play, you know, and not going yes. to get this out quickly. And even when we build it, we, the mission is to rent out, you know, to have tenants yes. and to create a community of businesses. So, uh, yeah, homes homes a little bit lacking equity at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> Instead of doing a renovation, I've just painted it. <laughs> uh, I it. That seems to be a pattern with you, Andrew. Like, uh, any, like,
1: uh, I don't know if you want to have a home close to you, uh, it, it tends to get mortgaged, but it also tends yeah. to pay off. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that, that's right. I mean, I, I heard this at a very young age. When you you need money, loan it. And when you can't loan any more money, loan some more money. So, <laughs> just borrowing more and more money. And that's been my sort of thing, you know, like even just down to a hundred grand, I'll try and revalue something, remortgage it, find a hundred grand and I'll try and invest that into something that's going to turn into two
1: hundred grand. Well and that's so interesting because there is this uh, split, right, between people who believe in leverage and people who uh, you know, are really anti, you know, being that leveraged, uh, you know, and certainly in the real estate community and even in the business community, uh, as well. So, um
0: you know, it's, uh, well, it's well. I can uh, say go no, no. Sorry, I was just going to say I worked every day in my business from taboo, from <laughs> fifty-two weeks a year for ten years straight. Yes, and I realized that I'd made more money in my buying a home exactly and doing the the Senkilda Road property, just two things, and I borrowed a hundred percent of the funds, and I enjoyed having them on the books than I did working all of those days, 3,900 days of working. And I made more money just doing property deals.
1: And I'll tell you so, that that's pretty common. And certainly in, I mean, I think that's more in available in, you know, in cities, right? Where real estate does, you know, does appreciate that kind of stuff. I've seen that. I mean, most of my clients, whether it's uh, as a lawyer, or, you know, people I know in the entrepreneurial world, not most of them, but a lot of them is have had that scenario where, you know, I do a lot of MA and and that kind of stuff. And, you know, we also do some stuff on the real estate side. You know, and I've had many clients where they sell their business and the building and they get, you know, X for their business and they get 10X
0: or 50X for the building, you know? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and so someone, someone's, you know, one of the things of advice I give to people, I just say, everyone should be in property. You don't, it's not a full-time job. It's a side hustle. And even if the property is your home, you know, the home here in Australia is a tax-free investment. And if you buy well uh, and you can add some value to it, you know, you buy the worst house and the best street, you can make money on the home really quickly. So that was my introduction. Uh, actually, the introduction was earlier with the mortgaging of Mum's apartment and the b- building. But once I had a little bit of value, I remortgaged and ripped it out and did something else with it. Uh, and that's the way, you know, up, up and away. And it's the first one that's the hardest. And then the next one's sort of can flow on.
1: Love it. All right, so let's close with one more deal story just because uh, it may not be your biggest deal. But it, in some ways, it's the most interesting because it involves an island, right in the middle of the <laughs> of, yeah of a, yeah a river here, yeah. and it's a totally different, it's totally separate business from what you're running. So you know, let's uh, let's hear that story before. Do you we, want to hear uh, that story? Yeah, I would love yeah, to. Hear
0: sure. That. Yeah. Okay. So I was um I was consulting for one of the political parties here, and I very rarely I put on a suit and went into Parliament House, and uh, and they were trying to work out how to win the election, and they were sort of had me at this round table and. Here I am talking about what I think is, is cool and what I think the city needs. And this one politician came and tapped me on the shoulder. He said, Hey, I've, I've got an island. And I was like, uh, what do you mean you've got an island? And he said, uh, I've got an island in Melbourne. Do you want to, could you come and have a look? I've got, I could get a liquor license for it and, and it could be yours. I'm looking to rent it out. And I, he, I said, mate, I don't know if you know what I do, but I don't, I don't do hospitality. Uh, that's not what I'm good at, but thank you. And he just came up to me again later that day. He said, would you just mind coming and having a look? So sure enough, I went down there on one morning. I remember going down there and uh, I didn't realise it, but I had toothpaste all down the side of my cheek. I had forgot to look in the mirror before I walked out the door and um, I sort of walked around his island looking very, you know, trying to be very cool about things, not realising it was toothpaste all down my cheek. <laughs> um, but sure enough, it was this amazing amazing little spot under the bridge like the main bridge in an area that's not that cool wasn't that cool 10 years ago but surrounded by water concrete base 150 meters on footprint and I said so what do you want to do with this and he said I want to rent it out because I'm going to become a politician I can't have a business where I've got a liquor license he didn't actually have the liquor license at the time so I said can I bring some people down? So I quickly called up my friend Jerome Barazio, who's a hospitality guru. He's really great at popping up bars very quickly and very cheaply and making them really cool uh, in that sort of a Laneway Melbourne style uh, because he created that sort of that that movement. And then my other best friend, Grant Smiley, who was a DJ at the time, and now he's a hospitality guru. We pulled I pulled the guys together, said quick come down. Now check this place out. We walked around it and they're like, wow, this is interesting. So I said, like, you know what? I've been in business 10 years. This is a present to myself. How much do you want for the lease? And he said, I'll take, I'll take 80000 a year. And he was quite interesting because he said to us blatantly, looked us in the eye and said, I paid 5000 a year for this and I'm going to charge you 80000 And I was like, right, that's nice. You're telling us how you're fucking us, basically. (laughs) (laughs) Just openly, it's like, I'm going to make $75,000 off you. And he's a very bizarre, peculiar businessman, this politician. He just used to tell us how he was making money out of us the whole time. So we did this deal, six months. I put some money that I had saved up to buy you know, the first home into this fit out. We built this pop-up bar got the uh, got a liquor license in the name of the the politician and on the day we went to open it liquor licensing came down and said you don't have a liquor license and because we'd done the deal to rent it for 6 months at 80,000 per year so you know $40,000 but we'd spent 50,000 on building the bar and we went to open the bar and sure enough we didn't have a liquor license so I was like oh my god i've just torn up all this money this is a complete failure um, we can't get the liquor license out of the politician's name and into our name, and that can take years. So um the politician, being a politician, was able to, he said to us, okay, tell you what, take the venue for a year and a half, keep the rent going the same. You guys open us a cafe, we're going to do a deal here. And so I was like, "All oh, right, this is shit. So uh, I extended the lease. We said, agreed to the new policy. Within a week, he got this liquor license. <laughs> and I was like, shit, that just went very smoothly. And I went down there, we cracked three beers down the three owners. It was a beautiful sunny Friday afternoon, the summer setting, and people just started to gravitate. They watched us drinking the beers down on the end of this little island in the city, and people started to come down the stairs. And I watched, you know, I went over to the bar and I watched people pulling out $50 notes and paying for, you know, three or four beers with a $50 note. And I thought, this is a brilliant business. And by the end of the night, more and more money just kept coming in and in and in. And uh, we had three great articles written up. And within the Friday, a week later, there was a queue going 100 meters down the road to try and get into a bar on the island. Wow. Um, and the thing just worked, it worked like crazy. And so I looked to the guys and I said, let's extend this deal. At the time, the politician said to us, before we opened, he said, do you guys want to buy this off me for $300,000, the twenty the five thousand 000- A year peppercorn rent. I've got it for twenty years. You want to buy this lease off me for three hundred grand? And we said, mate, no way. (laughs) We're going to see. But all of a sudden, this thing just worked. So we said, okay, we'll buy it. We'll buy a six-year lease off. So we sat down and we negotiated. He wanted a hundred thousand dollars for six years, and then at the end of the six years, he says, I want the books, and I'm going to sell the business. Your business and I said no, 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 no. You're not going to do that because yeah, I'm going to no. run the business into the ground. I'm not going to let you do that. I said I'll go. F- we got to a point where we negotiated fifty-fifty percent of the business he could sell our business for at the end of the six years, but it meant we had to leave after one year of doing that deal. And a record like this, bit bar was just pumping. We said, you know what? We've got to get rid of this guy. Yeah. And so I called him up and said, okay, I'm going to write you a check for a million dollars to get rid of you. And he said. I want $2 million. And I was like, mate, come on. This is to to sign over the head lease where the head lease only pays 5000 a year to have 150 metres property in the middle of the river, right in the heart of the city. And he said, I'm going to sell you 21 years of um, the rent in advance. Let's just look at it that way. And so we said we have to do the negotiation of, you know, the total fear of loss. We're we going to walk. Well, this is not worth anything without us. And we had that tussle off, knowing that I said, "I've got to check you with seven figures on it, and I know you want it. But if it's too high, it's not going to happen. I'm just going to put this money into something else." Uh, and sure enough, he came back to us, and we agreed on a figure, which was which just call it just call it in the middle, in the middle, appropriately. And ten years later, the build the uh, the venue is one of the most iconic venues in uh, in Victoria. Most pictures, if you Google Melbourne, you'll see our bridge. Um, with our venue, and it's been published all over the world, and it's been a wonderful little business. And it's a great, it's a great fun to go down there and sit and enjoy a beer and look back at all the deals that we've done over the time. I love it. I, love it.
1: I assume you you don't run that business, right? So you you get the you know that's mostly passive for you, right?
0: That, that's that's it. That's exactly right. That's yeah. um the three of us, it's we call it an internet business. Actually, one of the partners lives in the country. One of the partners is in LA. And we just work with a great CEO, a great venue manager, uh, and we empower her. Her name's Storm, to go and make magic down there. And um, and the business, it's just a hot spot. So sadly, it's closed at the moment due yes. to the coronavirus. And we've packed up. It, it operates 365 days a year, but so it's closed for the very first time in ten years.
1: Wow, wow. One of the reasons I do this podcast is to really encourage people to, uh, you know. One of the premises is that every single business tries to go, grow organically, and they should. You've got to be able to, you know, have sales and marketing. You've got to be able to sell a product or a service, right? Or else you can't be in business. But there are only uh, a small percentage of them, comparatively, that grow inorganically through deal-driven growth. And you're such a great example of, you know, we haven't talked about the organic side. I mean, you've done all kinds of things, I'm sure, in sales and marketing and built up clients and done all the kind of stuff. And you would have had a very nice business with just your organic growth. But when you add the deal-driven growth on top of it, you know, look where you've gone. And that's, you know, that's my
0: message to a lot of our listeners to say, hey, you know, do both. L- look at the uh, the deal driven opportunities as well. Corey, this is the first time anyone's ever summarized it for me like that, but you're absolutely correct. Yeah, I really enjoy, like I believe in an organic growth because it's safe and it's secure and it feels like, yeah, it's natural. But at the same time, I wouldn't have got ahead without um, having to crunch, you know, to bust a few things and break bits and move myself into particular areas that I could see more rapid value being created.
1: Okay, so Andrew, you know, so that's great, and you've given so much value here. You know, you're an inspiration, I think, to entrepreneurs who see the value, you know, who hopefully after this, if they haven't before, uh, on all my other episodes, see the the opportunity for deal-driven growth. If people want to find out more about you and your companies, what's the best place for them to go?
0: Yeah, um, taboo.com.au is our uh, agency website. But by all means, you can find me on LinkedIn. And my name is, my name It's Andrew McKinnon, M-A-C-K-I-N-M-O-N. I'd love to connect, reach out. Excellent. Fantastic. And so my final question on the podcast
1: is always about authenticity. And for me, authenticity is one of my highest values, and it's not about external morals or anything like that. It's about sort of alignment within the truth you know, getting clear on what we're here for and making decisions from that line place. Uh, what does authenticity mean to you and how does it apply to your life and business?
0: I've just learnt from the very beginning that being a real human wins more points. It wins trust. And when people trust you, they like you and they're willing to work with you. And um, I believe in vulnerability with authenticity. So if authentic means I'm feeling you know, I'm feeling on fire, I'm feeling great or authentic means like I'm not, I'm hurting a bit, I'm sad, I'm feeling flat. Just being real and being present with people and always sticking with the policy of the truth, trying not to be tempted into exaggeration and being too slippery and salesy and pushy. Just keep it real and put it out there and then you'll end up finding real people that that are vulnerable, um, present and that are kind and then you end up doing, uh, having, building a great network of of wonderful people that you end up doing business with and being friends with. Absolutely! Wow, it's been such a pleasure to have you on the podcast, Andrew. It's been awesome, Corey. Thank you so much for
1: having me. Thank you for joining me on this episode of DealQuest, where we help you discover the genius of deal-driven growth. You can be a friend of the show by leaving a review on the Good Pods app podchaser.com, or any major podcast player. Each review helps the show reach more listeners. If you're ready to take your deal-making to the next level by becoming a master negotiator, head over to Amazon or Audible and grab a copy of my best-selling book, Authentic Negotiating. Then connect with me on LinkedIn and let me know your thoughts. I'm Corey Kupfer. Until next week, wishing you the freedom that I know your deal quest will bring.